Hello and welcome everyone back to another episode of the Publisher Lab. I am Tyler Bishop and as many of our regular listeners will note, uh, our good friend Shelby Kang, our regular producer, is actually on vacation. So she's out for a little while. She's traveling the world and alongside me today I have Alan Longstreet and Sarah Clow who um, you may have been introduced to Alan last week whenever we were on the show together. And Sarah, you're a, you're a new voice, actually. Hi. Yep, I'm new. So lots of new voices today. So for those of you that heard a little bit of Alan last week, uh, Sarah is new to the team. And Sarah, we're throwing you in pretty deep here right away. We're just throwing a yep. microphone right in front of you. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess it's partially like one of the better ways to learn, right, is to just kind of like have to talk through things in the space to um, to sort of learn more about them. On a whim, knowing nothing about what I'm talking about. Yep. Don't let them know. Right. Don't let them we'll know cut that can... part out. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe, Alan, you can give us like a little bit of, uh, I guess, background on what we decided to do with this episode. So specifically, we thought um, it might be fun to do something a little bit different since we're changing things up here a little bit, right? Exactly, yeah. So for this week... Uh, Sarah and I have put together a series of topics, and we're just kind of going to alternate back and forth with them. Okay, so yeah, we can we can definitely roll with the articles, and um, we'll we'll kind of get started from there. So, what did you guys come up with? Yeah. Okay. So the first topic that we have today um, is trending right now in the industry on Netflix, and it's about the war for streaming videos. So TV networks are now taking on digital platforms um, to compete with Netflix. In the past couple of years, we've seen some mega mergers like Disney and Fox, AT&T and Time Warner, um, and a few more. Netflix has established that people are willing to pay for video streaming, and now every major entertainment company wants in on this. So ad buyers are growing more and more hungry for targeted ads against TV quality content, and now TV networks are starting to plant seeds to make targeted advertising an even bigger part of the next year's upfront pitch. So the surge that we're starting to see in competition for viewers and advertisers' attentions and wallets is inevitable to continue. The question being asked around this topic right now is, how many services are people willing to pay for and what does this mean for publishers? Yeah, so I, I think maybe this is something we talk, talked a little bit about in, in previous episodes we probably haven't dug into very much, and that is, kind of the conglomeration for content at the top of the market. So um, basically a lot of the large media uh, companies are trying to buy up a lot of the, I guess, kind of popular forms of content that exist out there. This has been happening with websites for a long time. You know, you have, you know, the New York Times or um, Vice or someone like that acquiring smaller sites and publishers and bringing them in sort of to their house. Uh, and we've seen this a while, for a while now with video content as well. Um, but now you're seeing almost like people build their their arms up, right? So we talked about Disney sort of uh, starting their own online streaming, kind of pulling all of their stuff out of Netflix. And so I, I think this we're really starting to see like the real change in video content. Uh, I think a few episodes ago we talked about Samsung creating a television that is in the shape of a phone and uh, how maybe misguided that is. But we're seeing before our eyes the idea of you know traditional television and television programming change to streaming. And you're starting to see maybe how that might look uh, in reality here in the next 
five or six years. I'm guessing both of you guys subscribe to video streaming services mm-hmm. of some kind. Netflix. Yep, Netflix for me. Um, and then Prime Video because I have Amazon Prime. And I had Hulu. Oh, yeah. I had Hulu for free for a little while because I had a Hulu's Spotify. Though, yeah. I had a Spotify student account, which allows you to get it for free. Oh yeah, me too. So wow, yeah, and I know a lot of cell phone companies have partnered with various streaming apps. Uh, some audio, but a lot of video as well. So uh, I think I can't remember. I think it might be T-Mobile T- has Netflix now. It's that's new. that's the one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, T-Mobile is partnered with Netflix. So I, I think we're starting to see like these kind of like almost CD synergies that you see in different times like uh, you know telecom did this a while back with the internet so you know it was because the rise of internet and cell uh, landline telephones and things like that uh, were already kind of linked to the internet but with cell technology and wireless um, all of a sudden these internet companies started getting in uh, in bed with the telecom companies and these large Entities like AT&T started becoming more than just a telephone provider. They became like a, you know, a large internet provider. And so I sort of wonder partially with the video streaming if the, the, there will be a place for, uh, I guess, one-off or niche uh, publishers and media businesses to grow and expand. I mean, there's platforms obviously like YouTube where uh, individuals can upload video and things along those lines. But will the will there ever be like a a one off streaming service that's that's really popular that will will remain unconglomerated? I'm a, I'm a bit skeptical. Can you guys imagine a scenario in which you would subscribe to a service just for like maybe one particular show or genre or something? Genre, yeah, something maybe niche. I I'm not sure. Yeah, it seems kind of far off just because. I know a lot of these big players in, in this industry will buy, will buy lots of content from mm-hmm. sometimes even like the smallest production companies where you've never heard of mm-hmm. them and uh, they're on their platform. So. I would only subscribe as if I couldn't get that content anywhere else. So like I like watching documentaries if I couldn't watch documentaries on Netflix or Hulu or HBO and there was just one subscription channel where I could watch documentaries. I would subscribe. I mean, if it was a reasonable price, I'd be like, yeah, sure, because I like watching documentaries. But And I feel like other people, if you had something you're super interested in, you couldn't get it elsewhere. But if you could, then I feel like it's rare. Yeah, I think this is going to be a point of contention going forward because we're seeing it now. Um, you know, I've seen it on social media where uh, Netflix has announced that, you know, enjoy The Office for the next two years. Yeah, I saw that. NBC for the next is, two years. Yes. And people are freaking out. You have two yeah, right, more years. Yeah. <laughs> NBC is taking it back on their platform um, in 2021. And yeah. friends. Yeah, I saw that, that that's interesting as well. And your, your point about documentaries, I think, is a really good one because um, it basically creates these silos of saying, well, this is where I get my documentaries. This is where I get my, you know, comedy movies or whatever it is. But one of the things I wonder is, will these conglomerated groups eventually get to the point where they say, okay, well, complete total streaming package, the way you have a cable package now gives you all of our video, yeah. but you can buy the... The silver package, which includes, you know, all your basic content like The Office and things like that. But maybe, you know, for the more premium or gold one, that's the one where you get, you know, some of these other, uh, for lack of a better term, channels and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I actually think that if that does become the case, um, we will see the ability for niche publishers once again to kind of rise to the top with platforms like YouTube and things like that. Because I think people get to a point where they... I mean, it's basically what happened with cable. Things got very expensive and bloated, and then there's all this really great free content 
Paul Kassar, who uh, is a colleague of ours, who used to be the chief digital officer at Hearst, he talked about how in his career, he watched this weird revelation where video quality was in a exact linear progression alongside uh, popularity. So as content got more and more popular, the quality went up. So you think about the history of movies in the 1950s and then you know, movies in the 1990s, you're seeing, you know, the quality actually of the production go up as the quality of like, I guess the video is going up as well, the content. But YouTube is actually the first example of like this big step back where all of a sudden you can have somebody with like a cell phone camera and they might be getting millions and millions. They might get more uh, viewers than the Simpsons and primetime television or something like that. So I do think that as long as you're creating great content, it doesn't matter if you're doing it in your basement or you're doing it as a part of a studio. I do think that there will be people that, that want to, um, uh, A, engage with it and, and, be, um, and be a subscriber to it in some capacity. But then uh, the other side of that, I think there will always be platforms that allow uh, for people to access those things, um, whether those happen independently or through something large like YouTube. Definitely, I agree. Um, and the second topic today is from Digiday, and it's that publishers are using their PMPs to answer advertisers' efficiency demands. Programmatic advertisers have grown more comfortable buying publishers' inventory on the open marketplace, and that brings up questions about what role, if any, publishers' private marketplaces, which enable publishers to maintain direct relationships with advertisers buying their inventory programmatically, now play. Publishers such as Leaf Group, AccuWeather, BuzzFeed, and DotDash have seized on ad buyers' efforts to make their programmatic buys more efficient through supply path optimization. And the popularity of supply path optimization among programmatic advertisers has given rise to a complementary undertaking among programmatic publishers that Scott Messer, SVP of Media at Leaf Group, has dubbed demand path optimization. Historically, PMPs have been able to reinforce publishers' role by offering safe havens for advertisers interested in buying ads programmatically, but are still concerned about brand safety and fraud issues with inventory available through auctions. However, ad verification vendors and initiatives like AdsText have helped alleviate those concerns. And the rise of header bidding combined with advertisers and agencies' embrace of supply path optimization has given ad buyers confidence that they're able to sufficiently access high-quality, high-performing inventory in the open marketplace. So do you think PMPs will have a future and continue to have value in the open exchange as publishers, agencies, and advertisers scale to their evolving audiences? So uh, short answer, yes. Uh, Long answer is... uh, I, I know I had a feeling this subject was coming partially because uh, when we were at lunch, you asked me, Tyler, what is a PMP deal? And I think it, 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 uh, if you search PMP on the internet, you're going to get all these weird project mm-hmm. management certifications yep. and things like that. Um, PMP just stands for uh, Private Marketplace Programmatic. It, um, it's a deal that basically allows uh, digital publishers to set aside a certain portion of their ad inventory, meaning like the ad space on their website, and say, I'm going to put this up for auction and sell it the way that maybe my salespeople might have used to sell it. So back in the day when you had a sales guy that took out all the big guys from Kellogg's and uh, took them to a nice steak dinner in New York on Madison Avenue, um, that money now doesn't really exist for those sorts of things. So now you have that inventory that was for sale once through a guy, uh, now on sale 
on the internet much in the way that you can buy it through DFP or something like that, but it's set aside uh, with a specific ID that you make available to uh, premium brands or premium advertisers at a um, premium price. So it sounds great if you're a digital publisher. It's because you're saying, hey, I'm going to get these big brand advertisers and they're going to pay me more. So I'll, I'll take as many of those as I can get, right? Well, brand advertisers are interested in that if you are a publisher that makes sense for them. So obviously the New York Times, PMP deal with the New York Times makes total sense. I know exactly who they are. Now that's gonna use up a very small portion of my marketing budget for one publisher. So now I have to think about buying in bulk. So I need a bunch of different PMP deals uh, to kind of get into and we have to find kind of like a marriage here. So as a as a publisher, you have to say, I want those premium advertisers, but I don't want to lock myself out via price because maybe I'm not the New York Times. Maybe I'm um, how to make a chair.com. And so while I'm not the New York Times, I do have a good website about chairs. My audience is good and uh, I'm you can trust me with your brand. So as the publisher, you don't have an opportunity to spend tons of time trying to do little bitty one-off deals. So you'll start to buy programmatically this way and you look for quality publishers. So PMP deals are something that are, is, is good for the ecosystem. Um, the downside is that um, I think that they're being maybe overblown is like this magic solution to things. The, the prices aren't that much higher. They're definitely not replacing direct deals and the time to set them up, deliver them, sell them, all that kind of stuff is not simple. And um, it also takes time, resources, um, all that kind of stuff. I know at Ezoic, we set those up automatically for a lot of our publishers. Um, uh, it's one of the biggest reasons why people outsource ad operations, but I'm not sure that that value is there. Um, you guys probably aren't familiar with this yet. Are you familiar with Google's big shift to a quote unquote first price auction? No, I'm not. Mm-mm. <laughs> Sarah just gave me this look like no. I don't even know what the auction is <laughs> yeah. for. The, the, like, don't look at me. <laughs> the first price auction basically is a big move. Uh, it's something we've talked about on the show before. If you're interested in ad ops, you probably have an idea about what it is. If you haven't heard of it before, um, we're just talking about something you're probably not interested in <laughs> to begin with. So uh, I'll basically just say this. The entire programmatic space is flattening. Uh, ad demand, header bidding, all these things. Um the difference between people that are doing all these things perfectly and all these people that are not that basically are leaving a lot of quote unquote money on the table is getting smaller and smaller and partially that's because google has chosen to operate in a first price auction like the rest of the ecosystem so that means google is going to win a lot more bids uh it's pushing out a lot of header bidders it's decreasing the need to have lots of different demand partners that win incrementally because they're going to win less often and buy even smaller amounts. And so ultimately what you're seeing is PMPs are a differentiator in terms of, you know, how can I optimize or maximize my site revenue through ads? Well, if all demand becomes closer and closer to being equal, then having premium deals on top of that can be helpful. But I do think that it's being painted a little bit uh, with with kind of like this magic solution banner. And I'm not sure that uh, it's A, going to be, you know, the end all be all for most publishers. Uh, although I do think it's a nice supplement. 
Do you guys have any thoughts on PMP deals? I think my thoughts are probably better, not me. <laughs> yeah, <I'll> <laughs> probably to... just like throw the spectrum like way over there. People I'll have to pass like. on that one. Give me a few more months, <laughs> listeners. But I can give you the next topic um, that I hopefully is a little bit more understandable. <laughs> so um, this is on Google. Google is no longer supporting no index directives and robots.txt files. So Google oh, man, is from we're going from PMPs <laughs> to robots.txt. Man, stay with us. It gets it gets funny after this one. <laughs> Google's retiring all codes that handle unsupported and unpublished rules in the robots exclu- exclusive protocol starting September first. So this means that Google will no longer support robots robots txt files with the no index directive listed within the file. So Google addressed this matter, and they said that since these rules were never documented by Google, naturally their usage in relation to Googlebot is very low and that these mistakes hurt websites' presence and Google's search results in ways that we don't think webmasters intended. So um, just in relation to this, Google suggested that if you are using the no index directive to find an alternative before September 1st. So Tyler, what do you think this means? So uh, do you guys know what a robots.txt uh, file is? I don't. You should stop asking those I questions. What, I know what ad stacks is. So <laughs> we, went, we went from being in a subject that's very deep into uh, ad ops knowledge, um, meaning the only people that are probably going to have like uh, kind of like knowledge on th- all those acronyms and, and topics we just went over is somebody that's probably in the ad ops field to going on the opposite side, which is if you're a front-end web developer or webmaster or something like that. So robots.txt file is basically um, a file that lives on your site. Uh, if you type in any website and put slash robots.txt, in most cases you'll get to see it. It's a plain text looking file uh, that will say allow, disallow, and uh, it's basically telling different crawlers, uh, giving crawlers permission to, uh, for what they can and can't crawl on a website. Um, so most websites, if you have an admin portion that's only available to users, you'll tell crawlers don't crawl this, mainly because you don't want it to be index someplace or be able to be read or scanned or uh, gathered by someone. And so uh, forever, uh, one of the classic like quote unquote SEO mistakes people would make is they would accidentally put no index on pages that they wanted Google to include in search results. So you'd have a plugin, you'd accidentally not set up a file right, something by default would set your page to no index and next thing you know, bam, where'd my, why isn't Google ranking my pages? Where'd my number one result go? Why am I not ranking anymore? Well, the page was marked no index. It's a classic issue to where it's the very first thing you should check if you mm-hmm. disappear from Google's index. And um, Google, and Google's been accused in the past of basically not obeying that. And a lot of people don't like that because they're saying, I put that in there because I don't want Google to index this content. I don't want it to be available to everyone on the web. And Google basically has said here recently that in more cases than not, it's an accident and that people have unintentionally made their content unindexable. Mm-hmm. I believe that that's true, but I also um, look at this with, uh, I mean, with all the things that Google has done recently that have kind of gathered, I guess, skepticism uh, or scrutiny from the public, basically telling publishers that or not even just publishers, all websites that if you tell us you don't want us to crawl this content, we're still going to do it anyways, I, I think is a pretty bold move. Um, so I guess, uh, do you guys kind of understand that topic a little bit easier? The robots.txt file 
is basically a way for you to tell a crawler, including Google, what it can and can't crawl. And Google is saying, we're going to yeah. ignore that. So find a different way. Yeah. How no, they, they actually provided like suggestions for alternatives too. But it basically sounds like Google doesn't want, you know, publishers or anyone who owns a website to have any kind of power um, that gets around what they're doing. Um, I would say not from a, a power standpoint. To I guess like, power is not a good word. Uh, I, I guess part of it is is I, I do think that Google is somewhat um, – I, I don't look at this in terms of uh, – I, I don't look at this skeptically. I really do think that Google's webmaster team, when you see how Google is divided um, up into all these different teams, it's not a big strategic mm-hmm. organization. Every – Every part, it's like the government. Every piece operates a little bit differently. So I think the webmaster team has realized that the vast majority, and this is true. I mean, like I said, it's the first thing you look at if a page drops out of the index in Google if they accidentally set a page to no index. So my guess is they're like, this is a huge problem. It's been a huge problem forever. Let's just circumvent robots.txt as a way for people to prevent us from indexing it. There are other ways you can stop crawlers from indexing. What what were some of the examples that they gave? Do you have any on, on hand? No, no. It's okay. There are some other <laughs> I ways. I do. I do. There are some ways you can you can prevent uh, crawlers from crawling different. They forms have of content. Um, no index and robots meta tags, um, four hundred four and four ten HTTP status codes, um, search console removing URL tool. Yeah, so a few those are all those are all good ones. So, I mean, the search console one is is Google. So again, you have to be a pretty savvy webmaster. You have to very specifically use one of Google's tools and say, go in and, and extract it and say, I'm going to physically take this out of the index, um, which actually probably isn't a bad solution because if you really don't want it on the internet, Google's giving you the option to remove it from the index. Um, so it's basically removing the problem of like somebody's page just getting messed up on online when somebody's trying to go visit your page and it just doesn't come up at all. So basically what it's doing is the robots.txt file is allowing Google to index your content. So be able to go out, grab your web page, and put it into the search engine to where it can rank it against other content. If the crawler cannot access the content or is told to not index that content for some reason, then it won't. So when people search for your content, they will not be able to find okay. it, even if by name. Which just causes more problems like, for everyone. Yeah, so I think yeah. so in general, Google's, Google's found that it's it causes more problems mm-hmm. than it does um, uh, solutions. So they do have some mechanisms for people to do this, but I, I do think it's interesting. And it is good to know if you're a publisher that has content that you've specifically set to no index because you maybe have subscription viewers or you know, you have something marked off and you don't want regular people to be able to find it. Uh, the 410 status code, getting into Search Console, having it manually removed, those are all some options that you could go with. Cool. All right. Um, this next topic is very different. So users are taking to Twitter to air their grievances about Facebook and Instagram being down again. Oh, no. So this morning, July 3rd, um, Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, who are all owned by Facebook, were down um, the company ironically took to Twitter to address their social network problems. Um, meanwhile, Twitter begins overflowing with memes and complaints from users bashing in Facebook and Instagram over their social media disruption. Um, so it's still now at 3 p.m., hashtag Facebook down and hashtag Instagram down are still two of the top trending hashtags on Twitter right now. And my personal favorite headline is 
Breaking news, mother and daughter are reunited in their own home thanks to the fall of WhatsApp, Facebook, and Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Did you guys notice before you knew, were either of you like on Facebook or Instagram and noticed that something was amiss? Yeah, 100%. I have to be honest, I have not noticed it's down. I haven't been on. It's still it's still not 100%. I've noticed uh, like stories on Instagram. Some of them won't load. Mm-hmm. Um, they're still a little dodgy. It, it reminds me of, uh, I think, around maybe March, uh, beginning of March, March 14th, 13th, something. They went down and something like this happened where people couldn't upload stories and a, and a bunch of other things like that. So it's a little bit surprising because it uh, it's happened twice now in the mm-hmm. last few months. And traditionally, their uptime has been really, really good, like above that 99.9% mark. And uh, I think, you know, technically, depending on how back, far back you want to draw the, the date range, they're, they're not at that mark now. Mm-hmm. So um, they may, it may be a process of integrating large systems and things like that. But, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's interesting uh, when that kind of stuff happens. It gives you an idea of just... Uh, especially with Cloudflare going down early this week, so much about 10% of the internet runs through Cloudflare and their CDN. And, you know, you saw a bunch of major sites like Uber was down and TechRadar mm-hmm. and a bunch of others. Also news sites as well. Yeah, but it, I think it gives us uh, a little bit of perspective on just how siloed we've become with our infrastructure from the standpoint of, you know, one or two major systems go down and it really disrupts a lot of the infrastructure like both news mm-hmm. and tools and applications we use. Can you imagine being stuck someplace where your only option to like get to an airport or something like that might have been Uber or or just using your phone in general. And if, you or know, WhatsApp for a lot of countries is the main form of communication. Yeah. That's right. For yeah. most or a lot of European countries. So if that's down, then how? How do you communicate? And it's like these handful of apps that we're constantly yeah. rotating through that we get that we consume so much content through. Mm-hmm. I think uh, as as more of that becomes. You might see it become more, you know, like a conglomerate. Mm-hmm. It's almost like in, you know, in China, like WeChat is like their main, you know, is where they go consume everything. So if one thing, if that goes down, that's, that's their main channel yeah. of like consuming their media. I know we have a couple of publishers that um, have support articles about Facebook or Instagram or iPhones and things along those lines. And every time that um, you see something go down or be amiss with these different major systems, they get these huge spikes in traffic because users are basically trying to solve the problem. And mm-hmm. uh, you, you can start to see just how dependent um, uh, we've become just in general on all these different information sources and reliant on them. Um, and it really makes you wonder as a, as a digital publisher, like what elements of the web are, are you relying on? And I think there's the basic ones that everybody knows for traffic like Google and uh, Facebook and, um, you know, a lot of other elements that to your website, WordPress maybe for a lot of folks. Um, so it, it is one of those questions you have to ask, like, what what infrastructure am I 100% relying on right now? Um, am I using AMP? And have I completely sold my site into AMP to the point to where, um, you know, this could be harmful if there's a hard pivot to something else? Or, yeah, I don't know. I think it just is a nice reflection for in terms of, um, what what am I 100% relying on? Where are my business risks as a publisher? That's a really good point. And speaking of business risks, I think I have a feeling what this next subject is. What, what do we have last on the agenda today? So last today is from Adweek, and it is from, you know, la- during last week's Democratic 
primary debates, many of the candidates centered their talking points around corporate greed. And one company in particular, to no surprise to us and, and to many of you, served as the bullseye among those companies targeted in this topic, Amazon. And it's not entirely surprising that big breakup big tech is a major talking point for the 2020 presidential hopefuls. This tech lash has been building up for many years. And the Department of Justice thinks that Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, and Microsoft, a.k.a. I don't know if you want to pronounce that GAFAM or G-A-F-A-M, are de facto monopolies. But just because these companies are dollar and data rich doesn't necessarily mean they don't actively compete on many levels. For example, Amazon's trying to turn the duopoly into a triumvirate, going after Google and Facebook by snagging around 9% of the digital ad sales. By 2023, they could take up as much as 14% of the total U.S. digital ad sales. And while Amazon is big, and some people believe it's an e-commerce monopoly because it's responsible for close to 50% of the online sales in the U.S., its business as a whole represents only 5% of the total U.S. retail market. The author of this article writes, How does a presidential hopeful accomplish dismantling big tech when we are using more digital tech today than ever used before, and we will use more digital tech tomorrow than we use today? Technology is way ahead of any policy or law that might govern it. So, Tyler, do you think these presidential candidates have any chance of enacting policy that makes their collective plight a reality? Or are we asking the wrong questions altogether in terms of our relationship with big tech as citizens? If that's I, a big one. If I, had, if I had a good answer to that, I'd probably just run for president. <laughs> uh, originally, when I was in school, I thought that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a, I was going to be a lobbyist, and then I was going to try to be a politician. But, and be uh, president? Well, maybe. <laughs> it just depends. I mean, that's the natural path anyway. I guess. If You're I could, a lobbyist sure. first, I could and do then it, you become a politician. If I could do it well, maybe. But then I realized I didn't care about politics at all. Maybe that's that's the secret, right? Or maybe. But I, I, to be honest, I don't know that I've got a, a good solution here. And I think they bring up, raise a bunch of good points. I mean, it, it parlays perfectly into the last topic we talked about, our reliance on these large platforms. So what do you want to do? Break them up? You diversify them? We're relying on them. If you very true. break it up, how inconvenient. I mean, part of the reason why they have these, uh, I mean, monopolies is because they have... Um, made things incredibly convenient. And that convenience has led to a certain amount of profitability. Um, one of the things I think is really interesting, and I've seen some charts on this, I think I shared one on Twitter uh, a long time ago, and it was just how much of the retail market that Walmart destroys Amazon on. And it's like, Walmart was the bad guy uh, in the retail space like 20 years ago. Uh, I grew up in a small town in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I remember when Walmart came to town, it was like, it was the worst thing that ever happened because everybody in town was like, oh, no, they're coming in. They're going to put all the little guys out of business. And now we're hearing sort of the same thing with Amazon and retail. And that's not to give Amazon, you know, like a pass here. But I do think that this question of what's going to happen if we do start to in enact antitrust legislation or something like that against these large tech businesses. I've always said, uh, our good friend John Cole, who's been on the show before, has said this before as well, and it's that the politicians don't know enough to really do something effective. And so that means that if they do something, it'll be ineffective, sort of like GDPR in Europe, and it creates a lot more confusion and um, regulation that's hard for everybody to, um, to navigate. So 
I don't have any answers. Uh, I don't know that the general public has any answers. Our politicians certainly don't have any answers at the moment. Um, so I don't know. I, I do think that the sentiment is growing more than ever before. I, I, don't, I don't know. You guys are um, you guys are slightly younger than me, and I'm, I guess I'm sort of interested. Have you felt this big shift in how, uh, I guess, maybe just public opinion has, has changed on, you know, organizations like Google or Amazon or Facebook over the last last decade even? Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I feel like there's a hypocrisy in terms of how people in my generation refer to these issues because um, I would say, generally speaking, the theory behind enacting some of these antitrust laws and the things that you spoke on, I, th- I think it's effective and it might work well in theory, but in practice, I think at the end of the day, it's going to be the, the end consumer um, that that's harmed. I mean, again, much of this is subjective opinion, but, you know, you see a lot of this with cities who, you know, like Austin, Texas, who banned Uber for over, I think it was two to three years. I actually arrived to Austin the week after my internship started when Uber returned, so I was very happy. But I think um, I think it's important for people to remember that while it's important to be critical of these big corporations, at the end of the day, there might be... Um, there might be suffering on the end of the consumer mm-hmm. in terms of if you're protecting outdated industries or things that the consumer um, has shifted away from in terms of their interest. I think you're right, and I think you put it really well, which is that you know these these large platforms. I think you know GDPR was enacted by the European Union, I think, largely to go after Facebook and Google. And what they didn't realize is because of the way that they did it, they hurt mainly small publishers and pretty much everybody that has a website. But Google and Facebook were the best protected against those relate uh, regulations. I think you're right about the end consumer being the one that's probably going to be the one um, that's m- most harmed in, in a lot of these cases. But, I mean, I guess time will tell. I'm interested to see sort of how this plays out. To be honest, I, I don't think any of us really know. And I think there was a time whenever I would have just said, nothing's going to happen. These things aren't going to change. The only disruption that is going to come will be in the form of, you know, true disruption that we traditionally see in technology where somebody comes out of nowhere and does something no one expected mm-hmm. and, uh, and takes over a certain space. Uh, but maybe that certain someone in this case is uh, Uncle Sam or <laughs> name your uh, I, do they call? Does anybody else have like a name, like a namesake for their government? Oh, Any other countries? Not question. that I'm aware of. Mm, no, not that I'm aware. Of. I, I could no. probably think of one if I had the time. But uh, if only John Cole is with us now. Yeah. <laughs> well, that does it for another episode of the Publisher Lab. We want to thank you for joining us, and thank you to Alan and Sarah for uh, filling in for Miss Shelby while she's gone. And I know we'll have a chance probably to hear your voices couple more times um or and probably even moving forward we've talked about adding some more episodes partially because um you guys are listening more and subscribing and listening to us on itunes we really appreciate that uh, because it helps us continue to invest in bringing you great content uh about digital publishing uh if you have questions about uh publishing or something that you'd like for us to talk about on the show you can get at us on twitter at adizoic And I think that's it. So we'll catch you next time on The Publisher Lab.